Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast. So glad to have you with us today as I welcome in our guest, Maude Marin. She is a congressional candidate in New York City's 12th Congressional District. Her website's maudmarin.com. She's also an attorney, a school choice advocate, and I just actually met her here at Blexit over the weekend. So exciting. Uh, Maude, thank you for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So first off, before we get into school choice, which I love to discuss, um, it's one of my favorite subjects because every time I discuss it with a different person, I learn another aspect of not only why it's so important, but how it can be implemented in another unique way. Uh, but first, tell us why you decided to run for Congress and what your what your platform is for New York. Sure. Um, well, I am a... Uh I am an attorney, as you said. I'm also a mom of four public school children, and in many ways, my um, my path to politics co- goes through um, public school education. And um, as I said, my four kids are, are public school students. I ran for my my school board here locally, and and served on that school board for four years. I also served on my community board for five years, and I served on the schools and education committee there. So I got a front row seat at, you know, to, to understand our school system, um, in addition to, obviously, <laughs> being in my kids' schools and, and, and understanding the schools through that individual role as a mom. And, you know, I am a, you know, I have been a Democrat for my whole adult life, and in New York City, a very traditionally blue state and liberal state um, and liberal city, Um there's been a lot of hostility to school choice. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you'd asked me several years ago, I probably would have told you kind of that what you hear from a traditional point of view, which is, um, you know, charter schools drain resources from public schools and, and, and that sort of thing. What I have learned through my journey as a public school parent has absolutely changed my mind about school choice and made me learn um, really how important it is to let parents make the choice that's best for them for their kids. Um, so that's the school part. There are, of course, to, to answer your question a little bit more specifically, there's a whole lot of other issues going on that, that prompt me and propel me to run for Congress, including in New York City, we have a tremendous crime problem that's going on, and we have a tremendous you know, government overreach problem that's going on where our governor is just deciding day by day whether or not our kids can take the masks off their face, whether or not restaurants can let patrons in that haven't been vaccinated, whether or not, um, you know, people can go to public spaces um, based on really overbroad and overreaching um, government controls. And a good example would be free speech. I'm tremendously worried about the free speech curbs that we're seeing. So there's a whole lot of issues. Yeah. And, you know, that sounds very similar to issues that we're facing across the country in many, many locales, many congressional districts. And that's why it's so important to have someone like yourself in the race who has an experience level that you have with being a former school board member and also sitting on other boards. And so that means you have experience working with people and handling very complex, dicey issues that have to do with money and people's children. And then going from there, um, your background as an attorney. So can we can we kind of veer into that for a minute? And I, I really feel like sometimes sure. when I talk to attorneys, 
I can almost tell before we get even further into the interview <laughs> because of the way attorneys, you have this unique ability to organize your thoughts while you're being asked a question and then you present the information and then you'll even circle back and say, and there's one more thing that, you know, I did not answer and answer that. And I, I so wish that I could manage my thoughts that way. Cause I'm so, as a radio host, I have like maybe 15 streams of information going at all times in my brain and I will answer. But I, if I get off on a tangent, I'll get so far away from the original question that I can't, I can't get back there on my own. So um, talk to us a little bit about your, like why you became an attorney and what, what that has led you to do in, in that part of your career. Sure. Well, I, I will say that I um, worked for over 20 years as a public defender And so I worked in the New York State criminal courts representing people accused of crimes. Um, And that gives me a fairly unique perspective on the criminal justice system. And, you know, in New York City right now, we're really dealing with some really big changes to our criminal justice system. And some of it, you know, comes from a really good place. We have this thing called the bail reform law in New York, where they changed whether or not judges are allowed to set bail pre-trial on certain people and on people accused of certain crimes, I should say. And, you know, again, you have to be willing to change your mind when you're presented with evidence that tells you that maybe your first thought on something wasn't right. And if you'd asked me about bail reform when it was being implemented in New York, I would have said it was a very good thing because I don't think justice should come at a price, right? Poor people or working class families who can't afford high bail should not be at a disadvantage to middle-class people or rich people who can just pay to bail themselves out. And I think that remains true. We want justice to apply equally to all people across the board, regardless of how much money is in their bank account. But what we've been seeing in New York is a revolving door criminal activity where people are getting arrested multiple times within a given week, that people are getting arrested and arrested, and no bail is being set because of these, this change in state law. And we're seeing this real uptick in crime and violence. We're seeing subway pushing, people being pushed in front of moving trains, subways, and being killed. And we just had a a particularly violent murder just a few blocks from where I live, where a a man who had been arrested many, many times before followed a woman into her apartment, barricaded the door, and stabbed her to death. So, you know, New Yorkers across the political spectrum and across the divide are saying something's not working. And we need to change it. And I have been um, an advocate for having honest conversations about the police and law enforcement, because there are things that we need to change. There's reform that can be positive. Uh, But there's also things that work about good policing and smart policing and careful policing that we need to not demonize and that we need to actually encourage and acknowledge is a part of living safely in a big city. It is. And I, so when you talk about that story, it's heartbreaking because we're talking about a 35-year-old woman. Yeah. You can see in the main floor, um, so the entry hallway where her apartment is, There's a there are security cameras. Yeah. You hear, you, you see the camera, you see her walking, you see him behind her. Mm-hmm. Um, she was defenseless, not just because of 
you know, being a woman and coming home at night and all of that. But also in New York, it's impossible as a regular person. You have to be politically connected to someone who works higher up in the police department of NYPD or someone in government in order to get a concealed carry license. You can't just conceal carry by right of your constitution in the state like I do here in in Missouri. I have a concealed carry permit, but I don't need it anymore because we have constitutional carry. So if I know that, you know, an area that I'm visiting is dangerous or if I feel, you know, I, I want that extra layer of protection, I can have that. Also, um, it is just not normative for New Yorkers to own guns because it, they've been so demonized. So even if she had said, you know, I'm, I'm now in my own home. I don't need a concealed carry. This man has followed me and he's forced his way in. She could have run and grabbed her own firearm and defended herself. But again, not normative in New York. So it's a very difficult situation for people in New York City where the avenues by which people all over the rest of the country defend themselves by concealed carriage, you know, firearms stowed in the home and in opportune places and an overall defensive mindset. We have um, castle doctrine here. We have stand your ground here. So Missourians know at any place in my vehicle, in on my person out in public, in my home, I am constitutionally mandated the right to defend myself. New Yorkers don't have that same attitude about their Second Amendment rights because they've been chipped away over the years. And so now we're seeing these, these to me, they're hate crimes in that a lot of the, the people, the most recent stories are young Asian women. But it doesn't matter if you're Asian or not. If you've been killed, that's a hate crime because the person hated you enough to kill you and deprive you of your life, liberty and and, and pursuit of happiness because you're dead. But there's a bigger story here. And, and it's all of it linked together. If we if we pull back out, um, we're examining at the like the micro level a single case of this young woman, thirty five years old, a tech professional. Now she's dead. But if we back off and lift way out of this and look at it over the whole, we see that bail reform is a function of the Democrats, gun control and the demonization of the Second Amendment and the right to defend yourself a function of the Democrats. Um, this idea that you don't have the right to defend yourself and that criminals need the right to be set free, even if they're repeat offenders. One of the victims, her her assailant, the person who killed her, had been arrested and released eight times. These are functions of Democrat one-party rule where other ideas are not allowed to be presented or considered because those people aren't in the room. What do you say about that? Because you, you were talking about being a former Democrat. I am too. I, I used to be a Democrat. Um, how, do you, how do you view the, the actual functionality of the Democrat rule in New York City? Well, I'm going to tell you this. I am not a former Democrat. I am a Democrat, and I am running in um, the Democratic primary. But I'm going to tell you two things. One, I agree with you very strongly that one-party rule, which is essentially what we have here in New York City, because in so many districts, um, we don't have a competitive general election. And so people know, like, oh, it's the Democratic primary, that whoever wins that is going to win the general, because sometimes we have a six-to-one or a ten-to-one um, difference in registered Dems versus registered Republicans and a very small number of unaffiliated voters. So, you know, after the Democratic primary, people start talking about the presumptive nominee, like, oh, that's the the, the presumptive candidate, right? As if the nominee is just going to win because the general election becomes sort of um, an afterthought. And that's why here in New York, um, various people have proposed the idea of open primaries. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense for New York, because what we have is a very small percentage of people, which are Democratic primary voters, deciding who the elected official is. And so they're deciding for everyone, for the Democrats, for the Republicans, for the independents. 
And what I would really like to see is more people weigh in on this conversation so that we hear, so that we have someone elected who represents a much broader cross-section of, of people. And, I, and I'll say this, um, many New Yorkers do not agree with your gun position, but I will also say that, that you know, reasonable people can have different points of view about that. But what you have to understand is that when crime is rising, people get scared and they look for solutions. So to Democrats who are strongly opposed to um, concealed carry or, or strongly opposed to um, having, you know, more guns on the street um, in New York, you know, cities are different than, than rural places. Um, you have to have a real and honest conversation about how to do policing and how to do law enforcement in a way that works. Because otherwise, people start looking for um, ways to protect themselves. And there's a real ripple effect um, that will happen when when people are scared. And, and, and people are scared. I talked to, as you said, we've experienced a lot of Asian women being targeted in New York City, and I live very close to Chinatown. There's a real and palpable fear among people. When I, when I take the subway, which I still do, people have started to stand on the steps that lead down to the subway instead of on the platform because of fear of being pushed. And that's just not acceptable. Like our subways have to be clean and they have to be safe and they have to work. Um, we pay a whole lot of money in taxes and we certainly should have a public transportation system that works for everybody. So first of all, um, I have a great deal of respect for you for taking the positions that you hold while still maintaining your affiliation with the Democrats, because we actually need more people who have differing ideas to be members of the Democrat Party in order to have some balance there, because right now the party is skewing so hard to the left and away from mainstream thought and uh, you know what what is normal. That being said, and you covered a lot there, and I'm so glad that we're having yeah. this conversation because it's very important. Um, but I think one of the things that when when Democrats talk about gun control, and you mentioned that many New Yorkers disagree with my viewpoint on whether or not people mm -hmm. should be able to defend themselves or to have more guns on the street, there are already many, many guns on the street in New York. But they are held by criminals because criminals don't obey laws. So to limit the number of guns on the street that are owned by lawful individuals creates a atmosphere where criminals know that law-abiding citizens are unarmed and therefore the deterrent effect of gun ownership is neutralized. So here in Missouri, I'm, I live in the suburbs, but I don't live in the rural area. I live in um, a metropolitan area of well over um, 1.5 million people. So I'm, I'm not in a, a, uh, a rural area. And in the city, the laws are the same. You don't, you don't have less of a right to own a gun in St. Louis City than you do in the county. Um, the laws that I was discussing are, are statewide. But we have a lower level of crime in the suburbs because criminals know that in the suburbs, every suburban home has at least one shotgun and people in the suburbs are willing to defend themselves. So they limit their criminal activity and there's still robberies and break-ins out in the, in the suburbs, but it's far less than it is in areas where criminals know people are not as fully armed. So there's a deterrent effect. That is undeniable. The the uh, all of the different organizations that track gun crime have all n noted that you have lower gun crime in areas where there's higher gun ownership. But there's another reason why what you said about New Yorkers not having that same feeling might be true, and that's over 333,000 New Yorkers have left the city since the pandemic began, 
And part of that was driven by the rioting and George Floyd and then the uptick in crime and the police being defunded in New York and then also uh, the bail reform. And so if you take all of those things together, it creates the perfect storm. You may still have a populace that is still kind of reticent about gun ownership, but the people who believed in it have moved out of the state. And there was also a surge, 8.3 million new gun owners. They bought 22 million guns during this period after the death of George Floyd when the cities were on fire. People were afraid. They moved. They bought firearms. They got training. And they changed their minds on the Second Amendment. And these are people who are coming from major metropolitan areas, huge cities in California, in Illinois, and in New York. Those were the main population drivers of the migration. So I think it's important to have the kind of back and forth that you and I are having because I don't believe people who don't want to own firearms should be forced to. But I don't believe that a person who, especially for women, the great equalizer for women is the ownership of a gun because we have less muscle mass. We are usually smaller in stature, except you and I who are very tall. That doesn't mean you and I can take on a six foot two man, right? A, a man of the same height as you and I, even a short man can overpower you or I because we're not we're not linebackers. We're normal women. And so the gun provides that equalizer. A man who's attacking me at night, if I'm armed, I am able to neutralize that threat and maintain my bodily safety, autonomy intact without having to suffer. Whereas if we're just going hand to hand, I'm going to lose that battle. So I think this is the conversation that needs to be had. This is the back and forth that has to be had, not just on school choice, but on guns and on bail reform. And and I, I stand ready to compromise on my strong stances on issues with people of good faith from the other side of the political aisle to come to a place that's comfortable for that community. Because I don't think New York City will ever be a place that has gun ownership at the same level as St. Louis County. But a little more gun ownership, the right for people who want to own firearms in New York, to, for them to have that right, and for everyone else who doesn't want to, for them to maintain their right, would be such an improvement for New Yorkers. And I agree with you on you know better policing, better relationship between the community and the police that are that are serving them. Um, you know better, um, I guess like oversight boards if there if there isn't one in New York to have that kind of interaction between a civilian oversight board and the, the NYPD. These are things that can improve relations between the police and those that they're serving. Um, but it can't happen unless people have the conversations like you and I are having now. And so I, I think it's so valuable. And I'm so glad we had a chance to talk. I hope we can again. Absolutely. I would like to I would very much like to continue the conversation. So I think next time we should well, we should talk by ourselves again. But then maybe we need to add in another voice and maybe have like a roundtable, you and I and another individual Um, coming from a slightly different place than you and I to really drill down on some of these things and talk about some solutions, a a more extended conversation, I think. It sounds like it would be so fun. Yeah, I would absolutely love to do that. And I'll just say um, in closing that I think you're really right about the fact that when you come to the table from a place of goodwill, it's really okay to disagree about things, even important things. If you come to the conversation understanding that what we all want at the end of the day, I think really anyone of goodwill wants to live in a safe community, to be mm-hmm. able to raise your family safely, to access good schools, um, and to, you know, enjoy the, the fellowship of your community, um, then yes, you can agree on big things. You you can disagree on big things, but still agree on your end goal and agree on how, um, you know, what your goals are and then talk about how to get there. 
Yeah. And, and even to maintain the relationship, because I kind of miss the, uh, the goodwill that used to exist between Democrats and Republicans on the local level, you know, uh, people at the federal level in the Senate and then Congress, they would joust and, you know, they'd be enemies. But at the local level, your next door neighbor, who is a Democrat and I'm a Republican, we're still friends because we live next to each other and we, we're we looking out for each other. If they're on vacation, I'm looking out for them and, you know, vice versa. And we're, you know, keeping an eye out when children are playing out in the street or what have you. And I, that has kind of evaporated in this this most You're recent right. atmosphere. And I just I Absolutely. long for the day when two people who differ on many things but agree on the end goal, safer communities, safer cities, you know, better educational outcomes, we can agree on all of those things, disagree on the methods, still sit down, talk, and then still, you know, we're waving when we see each other, maybe even having coffee or dinner like regular people. Come on, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. I will say that my my journey as an education advocate has reinforced so strongly for me everything you just said, because, you know, I live for a long time in my blue bubble. And then when I started working on education issues, I was working with parents who were strong charter school advocates and parents who were fighting to keep our gifted and talented program here in New York. And then, you know, lo and behold, to my surprise, it wasn't all liberal Democrats. I was talking to, you know, Republicans who were staunch, um, you know, Republicans who had different positions in the on some things, but then we found that we agreed completely about what our schools needed and what our kids needed. And I thought, well, here we are sitting down, breaking bread together and agreeing on so much. Maybe on the areas where we disagree, we can have a civil conversation. And that started to happen. And I'm very grateful to that school and education advocacy community for that, because it's helped me to sort of broaden my, my ability to talk to folks about other issues outside of education. <laughs> That's how it starts. Yep. <laughs> That's how it starts. When people sit down and they're like, hey, wait a minute. We're agreeing on this. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're off to the races. Well, I have to say, this was, I was looking forward to it. It has been just as awesome as I hoped. And I look forward to talking to you again. Um, we we will definitely be moving this conversation to the night show. And then maybe we could do a roundtable on, um, on, on our podcast platform to broaden the conversation. It'd be so fun. You are at... Mod Marin on Twitter. I have a link to your Twitter, a link to a couple of stories that are pertinent here, um, and your website for your campaign, all in the show notes of today's podcast. So glad you were with us today, Maud. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stacey. It's been great. And that's another podcast in the books. You can find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com and FamilyVisionMedia.org. I will be back with you soon. God bless. <laughs>